thank you again for this time. We ask that you just bless the time of Bible study as we look at um, these things that we can make application, even though it may be a historical recording, they're recorded for us to learn and and glean and, and learn by. So again, we ask that we would be a people teachable, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so where we find ourselves in 1 King is that Solomon um, has brought the nation, ruling during the time where it was Israel, experiencing its greatest peace and prosperity and power. And as we saw Solomon, he completed the temple, building of the temple, and also his own house. And you recall that in chapter 8 of uh, 1 Kings, that at the end of that chapter, after the dedication of the temple, that the people all went back to their own homes. They had a gladness of heart. They were very joyful because of the wonderful things and the great things that God had done for them. And God was really blessing the nation because they were a people at this time united, a people who were following after the Lord. And so they had the dedication of the temple, and, and it pleased the Lord uh, so much so that the glory of the Lord manifested to where uh, the priest couldn't even minister anymore in the temple. So the, the nation of Israel at this time, as we saw in chapter 8 and, and have moved forward, is experiencing its greatest power and prosperity. And now that we see as we go into chapter 11, we have seen, as we saw the first 13 verses of chapter 11, that Solomon, as uh, he gets towards the end of his life, he was one that, as I told you in chapter 9, verse 1, a real key was that Solomon completed all the things that, that were on his heart. He completed the building of the temple, and he completed his own house. And I think at that point, Solomon's heart kind of takes a turn. And we see it most clearly as we saw in chapters 9 and 10 and into chapter 11. What happens is, because Solomon built the house of the Lord, he built his own house, he got distracted, and he began to set his heart on amassing gold. He was uh, multiplying gold, as we saw, building ships that go to Ophir to bring gold back, and exotic animals, and spices, and silver. And there was so much gold that he had gold everywhere. Even his cups were made of gold that he drank from. He had a throne that we read about that was made of ivory, and he overlaid it with gold. And Solomon, he received a yearly wage of gold. So he was into multiplying gold. He was into multiplying horses, as we saw, and also multiplying wives, because we know that Solomon had a thousand wives and concubines. And Solomon, known for his great wisdom, because you remember in 1 Kings chapter 3, when Solomon first came to the throne, that the Lord appeared to Solomon. And Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom. And the Lord said, Solomon, because you did not ask of anything for yourself, uh, I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm also going to bless you tremendously. And God was pleased that Solomon had asked for that wisdom. But then we saw the second time in chapter 9 that the Lord, 20 years later, would come and um, appear to Solomon once again and remind Solomon of the covenant that he had made with the children of Israel, that if you follow after me, I'm going to bless you in the nation. If you don't follow after me, there's going to be judgment and serious consequences. And it's interesting that chapter 9, we see a turn of Solomon's heart towards the things of amassing wealth, as I said, towards the things of the world. There were the kings and uh, mighty men of the uh, known world that were coming from all over to hear Solomon's wisdom, and he was charging them for that. 
So we see Solomon as he would then have a thousand wives and concubine, as we ended chapter 11 last week, that those wives uh, would turn his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So Solomon began this idol worship and burning incense and giving worship and building places of worship to those foreign gods because many of those wives that he married were from foreign nations and they were ones who believed in false gods. And we know that clear back in the book of Deuteronomy that when the children of Israel were getting ready to come into the promised land, that the Lord told the people, when you ask for a king, that the king is, first of all, to write down the word of the Lord, the law. That's what he was supposed to do. And then he was not to multiply horses or wives or gold. And Solomon did all three of those things. And the Lord told them very specifically, when you go into the promised land, do not intermarry with those foreign wives, because what they will do is they will turn your heart against me. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. And here's the thing, as we began to end our lesson last week and discuss about, and I want to remind you of it, is this, is that Solomon, as he got older, he did not get wiser. Matter of fact, this man known for wisdom, and, and we think of Solomon, the wisdom of Solomon, how great it was, and people came to hear him, yet he was playing the fool. And yet he did not get wiser in his older years, and he was one that ignored the word of the Lord and the law that was given to him. And we need to be careful in our lives that as we log some time with the Lord, that we don't begin to ignore God's word that is given to us. There is a statistic that I just heard of this last week and the statistic is showing that the longer that a person becomes a Christian, do you realize that the less likely that they're going to serve the Lord and the less likely that they're going to be in fellowship in church? It's almost like they say, you know what, I've been to church, I maybe served the Lord, I was excited initially. And usually what is telling me in that statistic that they're less likely to serve the Lord, less likely to be in fellowship, probably what is following is they're not reading their Bibles, they're not having their devotions anymore. They begin to become apathetic, and it's so easy for that to happen in our lives. And I just want to encourage all of us here tonight, if we get anything out of tonight's study, is be careful. Don't become lethargic. Don't become apathetic. It's very easy to begin to turn your heart towards the things of the world, to begin to get so busy in life or pursue uh, the things of the world that you begin to turn your heart away from the Lord. And I believe that's what happened with Solomon. He was just so inclined to just amassing horses and, and wealth and um, all of this and his prestige and his building projects and it was a burden on the people that he began to turn eventually his heart away from the Lord because of the foreign wives that he had married. So what we see here is the Lord came to Solomon in chapter 11 and said, Solomon, that the nation's going to split, that uh, it's not going to happen in your day, it's going to happen to your son, and, um, and I'm going to give you the tribe of Judah for your father's David's sake and also one other tribe that's going to be Benjamin. But before the death of Solomon, we see that God is raising up some adversaries against Solomon. Let's begin to read at verse 14 of 1 Kings chapter 11. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, who was a descendant of the king in Edom. For it happened when David was in Edom 
that Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he had killed every male in Edom. And because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom. So this was the days of David. David, of course, was a warrior. He defeated all his enemies around him, which would include the Edomites. Joab was the commander of his army. So it speaks of this incident that happened. And verse 17 tells us that Hadad fled to go to Egypt. He and certain Edomites of his father's servant with him. And Hadad was still a little child. And then they rose from Midian and they came to Paran. And they took men with them from from Param and came to Egypt to Pharaoh king of Egypt who gave him a house uh, a portioned food for him and gave him land and Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh so that he gave him a wife the sister of his own wife that is the sister of Queen Taphanes and then the sister of Taphanes bore him Genhubath his son whom Taphanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Genubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. Verse 21 goes on to tell us, So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers, that Joab the commander of the army was dead, that Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me, that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, Nothing, but do let me go anyway. And God raised up another adversary against him, Rezan, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders. When David killed those of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. In verse 25, he was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, beside the trouble that Hadad caused. And he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. So here we see that as Solomon is turning his heart away from the Lord, that the Lord began to raise up these two adversaries that are named here. First of all, there is Hadad, uh, who was an Edomite that would flee to Egypt as a little uh, boy. And as he hears that David is dead and uh, his commander Joab is dead, he asks to leave Egypt and he goes back uh, as he leaves the comfort of Egypt back home. And he's an adversary against Solomon. And uh, we also see that it mentions here that reason also is one that God raised up as an adversary as well. I want to remind you and me tonight is that as we are walking with the Lord and as we believe in the Lord, that there are some adversaries that come against you and me as believers. And one is the world. Here is Hadad that was in Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. But the world will come against you and me. And we should know that. Know that the world is not going to be your friend when you are a Christian. The world's going to hate you is what Jesus said because the world first hated me. And know that the world is not going to applaud you when you become a Christian. And I hope that none of us think that, well, if I become a Christian, then, um, you know, the world's going to applaud that. The world's going to like me for that. The world is not. The world's going to hate you because the world is against the things of God. And that's why we're told in 1 John that we are not to have a love for the world. It doesn't mean that we don't love those in the world. Of course we do. We are to love the, the unsaved people, have a heart for them, be a witness to them. But we are not to love the things of the world. We're not to be enamored and pulled away by the philosophy of the world, the ways of the world, and the pleasures of the world. So that is one adversary that will come up against us trying to trip you up 
and, and pull you away from your devotion and closeness to the Lord and your commitment to the Lord. The other adversary that will come against you is the enemy Satan. And Peter, of course, he writes in his epistle that watch out, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that's why I think it's important to remind all of us that we need to be ones that, that we're sober, we're vigilant. And it's interesting, as you go through the New Testament, how many times that we're told in the New Testament that you be vigilant, be sober, be watching. Again, as you log time with the Lord, it's very easy to go to sleep spiritually, to become lethargic, and then begin to just compromise in your life. Maybe even begin to get involved in sin, thinking nothing's going to happen to me. It's okay. Everything's cool. Everybody else is doing it, whatever it might mean. But here's the thing, that if you go into the enemy's territory, or if you go into the territory where the world is just engulfing you and being a priority in your life, the enemy Satan is waiting for you because he is the God, little g of this world, the scripture says. He is the prince of the power of the air, and he's going to pounce on you, and he's going to rip your head off. That's what he's waiting for. He's waiting for you to go to sleep spiritually. He's waiting for you to get lethargic. He's waiting for you to get cold in your devotion to the Lord, and for you to go into his territory, and he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we need to be careful. So these adversaries here raised up against Solomon, but we also know that there's a main adversary, Jeroboam, that the scriptures are going to focus on in the next few chapters. Verse 26, Then Solomon's servant, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the Ephraimite, from Zerada, whose mother's name was Zer. Um, Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. Solomon had built the Milo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. And so what we read here is that there's this man, Jeroboam. He's, he's a mighty man. Um, he is, uh, in verse 28, uh, a man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. And here is this man, Jeroboam. He's very resourceful. Uh, he's very together. And he is one that is a servant uh, of uh, Solomon. Uh, he is over the labor force of the house of Joseph. And he ends up rebelling because of the projects in the city of David. Now, what specifically caused that Jeroboam to rebel, the scriptures doesn't say. But as Solomon looked at Jeroboam, Jeroboam, again, being very resourceful. But what we're going to see that is that Jeroboam did not have a heart for the Lord whatsoever. He is actually going to lead much of the nation as the nation is going to split. He's going to be the first king of Israel. He's going to lead the, the northern ten tribes into idol worship is what he's going to do. I think there's an important principle here, and especially for those of us who are in ministry and leadership in ministry, sometimes churches and pastors and ministry leaders they will see somebody who's very resourceful. They'll see somebody who's perhaps a, a great speaker, uh, uh, maybe even a, a good teacher, somebody who's really good with the youth. Uh, the kids love him and they love being around him or, or them or her or whatever it might be. Maybe a very gifted musician. But here's the thing that we need to watch for. Where's their heart towards the Lord? And we need to make sure before we put somebody in any kind of leadership position in ministry that, that they have a heart for Jesus Christ more than anything. 
But sometimes what can happen in churches is that they're so excited when they see somebody who's very resourceful and very talented and very gifted that they automatically put them in positions of leadership, whatever it might be, in teaching or ministering to youth or, or uh, in worship, and not really care or are that concerned about where their heart is with the Lord. And for me here at Calvary Chapel, the people that are ministering here, I'm very blessed by those who are ministering here and those who are leading worship, the elders that are here, those who are teaching the children, those who are teaching the youth, because they have a heart for the Lord and they love Jesus Christ. And I'm very blessed by that. And we always want to keep that a priority as we serve, because our service should be a result of our love for Jesus Christ, right? So here is somebody, Jeroboam, that was together, but his heart wasn't right with the Lord. And, and here is uh, Solomon. He uses him um, in, in leadership to be this uh, man who's overseeing uh, all these projects of the city of David. But we read in verse 29, it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way, and he had clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. And Ahijah took hold of the new garment, garment that was on him and tore it in 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourselves 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give 10 tribes to you. But he shall give one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, verse 33, because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shamash, the god of the Moabites, Welcome the God of the people of Ammon, and I have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I've made him ruler over all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. And so what we see here is this prophet Ahijah, and we're going to see him again in a few chapters at the end of Jeroboam's life. But he finds Jeroboam, he has this new garment, and it's interesting, the ministry that prophets have, and we're going to see their interesting ministry as we continue through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, because God is now sending the prophets to speak to the leaders of the house of Israel, which is going to be the ten northern tribes in the house of Judah. But here, Ahijah is just repeating what the Lord had told Solomon, that Solomon, the nation is going to split, but I'm going to give you one tribe, that is, it would be the tribe of Judah being joined with that one tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And that's what's being told Jeroboam. And he's being told that Israel is going to be given to him as we continue on in verse 35, but I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and gave it to you, ten tribes. So here we see at this point of the Old Testament, as we move into the next chapter, we're going to see the nation split to the ten northern tribes that are going to be given to Jeroboam. That's what he's going to be told. And that is the house of Israel or the nation of Israel. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, is going to make up the house or the nation of Judah. And as we go through 1 Kings, what's going to happen is sometimes it's going to be a record and a recording and telling us about the king of Israel, beginning with Jeroboam, and then sometimes it's going to be speaking about the house of Judah, beginning with Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So we got to put on our thinking caps when we go through the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and make sure that we keep that all clear. Is it talking about the ten northern tribes or is it talking about the, the house of Judah with 
Judah and Benjamin. And that's where, of course, Solomon's temple is. And that's where Jerusalem is. And a lot of Christians are confused by that. If they're new to the scriptures or they really haven't read the Old Testament, they're reading about Israel, they're reading about Judah. And what's the difference? Well, there is a difference, and we see it here. But here it is Jeroboam that's going to receive the ten northern tribes. We read again in, in verse 30. Um, Eight, then it shall be if you heed all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. And Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt and Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So here's what Ahijah tells Jeroboam. He says, Jeroboam, listen, the covenant applies to you. If you walk in my ways, if you keep my statutes, if you keep my commandments, I will establish you. I will establish you just as I did with David. And I will bless you and I will bless the nation. So Jeroboam is here told of the covenant that God had made with them and, and follow after me. We're going to see that Jeroboam is not going to follow after that. But first before that, the death of Solomon in verse 41 and the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in this place. So here is the nation. And it's interesting that when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, it was about 1500 B.C. when Moses came out. And, and here is Moses as he comes out of Egypt and, uh, you know, they go through the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And then Joshua takes them into the promised land. And for that generation that Joshua goes and defeats the Canaanites, they're, they're having victory. They, they take the land. They divide up the land into different tribes uh, that receive their allotments. And it's a good time. But think about this. From 1500 B.C. to 400 B.C., which is the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, much of that time there is turmoil and there is difficulty because of their idol worship, because of their rebellion against the Lord. There's relatively a short time that the, God is really blessing them, and that's during the days of Joshua, that generation. But then after Joshua, what comes after Joshua? The book of Judges, right, as we saw? And it was that generation after Joshua that they turned away from the Lord and they went after those Canaanite gods. And for 400 years, there was the days of the judges. Then the people came and asked for a king. Saul was the first king of Israel. And of course, he was replaced by David. And David would defeat his enemies. David reigned for 40 years. And then Solomon reigned for 40 years. So this 80 years here, there's relatively, you know, um, there's the blessing of the Lord. There is the nation that is united. But now we're going to see that the nation is going to be split. And from now until they go into captivity, the house of Israel in about 720 B.C., they go into captivity um, in uh, 720 B.C. by the Assyrians about 200 years after this event that we're reading about in chapters 11 and 12. And then it would be the house of Judah that would go into captivity by the Babylonians beginning in about 605 B.C. And then Judah would come back from the captivity and 
and um, they would be oppressed by somebody, the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Grecian Empire, and then the Romans would come in. But it's really interesting when you think about their history, a relatively short time that God was really blessing them, and, and they were following after the Lord. But let's see this revolt against Rehoboam. Again, Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, right? He is the king uh, over Israel right now, chapter 12. Israel still united as we move into chapter 12, but Jeroboam being told it's going to be split, just as Solomon was told, it's going to happen during your son's reign, and that's what we see in chapter 12. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. Shechem is interesting. That Shechem was that place that um, Solomon, or um, excuse me, Rehoboam goes to be made king. But as you look at Shechem, it has a long history. It's the place that Abraham went to uh, to worship in Genesis chapter 12 when he first came into the, the land that God said, I'm going to give to you. We know from Genesis chapter 33 that Jacob purchased land there in Shechem. And also Joshua chapter 24 tells us that's where Jacob's son Joseph was buried as well. So here's Rehoboam in Shechem, a very important place geographically to the nation. And so it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it. He was still in Egypt, and he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and been dwelling in Egypt. And so they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy now, therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us and we will serve you. So he said to them, depart three days and come back to me, and the people departed. So the people came to, to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and they said, listen, your father, he taxed us very heavily. It was a heavy burden on us. Can you ease up a little bit on us? And Rehoboam says, you go away and come back in three days, and I'll give you an answer. Now, we do know, as I mentioned to you, after the days of the judges, Samuel was the last of the judges. And it was Samuel, as we see ministering to the nation in 1 Samuel, finally the days of the judges come to an end. They turn towards the Lord. But what the people did at that time is they came to Samuel and said, listen, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. And it was Samuel that was brokenhearted over that. He grieved over that. And the Lord came to Samuel and said, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me because I want to be their king. I want to rule over them. That's why I called them Israel. Israel means governed by God. He really desires to rule over our lives, doesn't he, in every area of our lives. And God had set the nation up to where they had the religious laws, they had the ceremonial laws, they had the civil laws. They had everything that they needed to be a light to the other nations, showing that God truly was their king, ruling over them, blessing them, and then it would attract the other nations and they would see that God truly was the true God. And, and how he was blessing his people. But they said, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king ruling over us. So the Lord said, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. Ever since they've come out of Egypt, they've been stiff-necked and rebellious against me. And so rise up and you're to anoint Saul from the tribe of Benjamin as the first king of Israel. And that's what Samuel did. Samuel also would go on to say in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, to the people that now that you've asked for a king, you need to know this. What the king is going to do is he's going to take your sons, he's going to take your daughters, he's going to take your land, he's going to take your vineyards, he's going to take your orchards, he's going to take your cattle, he's going to take your sheep, he's going to take a lot of things from you. And that's what Solomon was doing. 
We read the daily provision of Solomon. It's all these cattle and oxen and sheep uh, and flour and grain and all of this. And he had all these building projects and he taxed the people very heavily and it was a burden to the people. So they come to Rehoboam and they said, can't you ease up on us? It's too much. He says, depart and come back to me in three days. And so they departed. Also notice that Jeroboam here is with them. So Jeroboam was known by the people of Israel. They send for Jeroboam. Hey, can you come with us to speak to King Rehoboam? And Jeroboam is there. But verse 6, King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And, and he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. And he goes to those elders that were there advising his father Solomon for all these years. These guys are older. They're a little bit wiser. He goes to them. He says, what should I do? They give a very good answer, don't they? They said, listen, you need to serve the people. You need to be humble before the people. You need to be good to the people. And if you do that, they're going to be good to you. And everything's going to be okay. In other words, ease up on them. Serve them. And we know that Jesus, that he says to you and to me as Christians, that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then be the servant of all. That's not how to be great, to be a servant, not to rule with a heavy hand. He's, Jesus said that's Gentile stuff. You're not to be that way. You're to be the servant of all. You're to humble yourself as a child. That's how you're great in the kingdom of God because the disciples are always arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom. So these older men that have been around and, uh, for a long time give this godly advice to Rehoboam. I just want to encourage us once again. And I think it's, it's a good reminder, especially after seeing this video, that what my prayer is for us here, that the way that, that it works in the church and should be, to have a healthy church and a vibrant church and a church that remains healthy spiritually is that the older men that we're working with and praying for and discipling the younger men, same with the scripture says that the older women are the counselor to the younger women, that those of us who have logged a few years with the Lord, that have been studying the scriptures, that have been through the test of time and experienced the trials, and, and as you get older, we should be getting wiser. We should be ones that continue with the Lord. And you have so much, those of you who are more mature in the Lord, to be able to bless those and help those who are younger. And that's what I pray has taken place here. And I believe that it is. And that's why I'm so thankful for those who took the time to take those young kids up to the camp, to love on those kids and to minister to them and, and to bless them. And that's what needs to be taking place. I see our young people and my heart breaks for what our young people are going through today in this messed up, mixed up world. And that we would have a love for them and minister to them. And those of you who are older in the Lord, you have opportunity to do that. To give wise counsel. To minister to them. To disciple them. And that's why we place discipleship such an important priority here at Calvary Chapel. To be able to minister to those who are not just young chronologically, but young in the Lord as well. To be able to raise them up. To encourage them. To edify them. And to bless them. And the same with the older women to the younger ladies. To encourage them in the things of the Lord. And, 
and as they become wives and mothers, to how to be a godly wife and mother and, and all the encouragement that they can use. That's what I pray is taking place. I hope that none of us come into this place thinking, oh, the young people, I don't like them. They're all over the place. They have their hats on and all of this. No, uh-uh. No. We're going to love them. And we're going to minister to them. And we were all young at one time, weren't we? And I'll tell you the truth on this. When I was young, I was pretty stupid. And I did foolish things. And I was so thankful that there was the Lord that brought certain people into my life that said, Jeff, it's time to grow up. And took the time to love me and be honest with me and ministered and discipled and helped me along. And I'm very grateful for that. And I pray that, that we would say, Lord, how is it that we can encourage the young? We want to encourage everybody here. And, and those of you who have logged a few years with the Lord, you're our resource. You're so valuable to us. And you're valuable to the young people. And you can be a tremendous blessing to them. So I pray that we wouldn't be cynical in that way. And here's the older people, uh, the counselors of Solomon, giving this godly advice. And we want to be able to do that, uh, give godly advice. But it's interesting what happens. Verse 8, he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him who stood before him. And he said to them, what advice do you give? And how do we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, lighten up the yoke which your father put on us? And then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke and, and going to chastise you with, with uh, a scourge, is what he goes on to say. You need to go back, Rehoboam. You tell these peoples what these young advisors were saying, that you're going to really put it on them and make it heavy for them and difficult for them. And that's what Rehoboam's going to do. But notice the key, I think, is verse 8. He rejected the advice which the elders had given him, the older ones who said, you need to be a servant. You see, Rehoboam, he'd already made up his mind before he even went to the younger guys. He didn't want to hear about being a servant. He didn't want to hear the instructions of the Lord. He had made up his mind, I'm going to go and find somebody who's going to say what I want to hear and see a lot of Christians do that. You can go from church to church. You can go to certain ministries. You can hear certain pastors that they'll say what you want to hear, justifying your sin or your lifestyle or your compromise in the Lord. You can find it. And not deal with the sin that you're involved in or the conviction of the Lord on your heart. You can find those churches, they're out there, that'll say, don't worry about it. Live any way that you want. Live any lifestyle that you want. Continue in sin. We just want to love people. Leave them alone. Rather than what true love is, is when we come and we tell you the truth of what God's word says and what he declares to you. And you see, if I'm not honest with you what the scripture has to say, then I'm not really showing love to you. And I pray that we would be ones that when we seek counsel, first of all, it's godly counsel. There's just safety in a multitude of counsel, but it has to be godly counsel. And if it is not godly counsel, you're going to be cheated. That's what Colossians chapter 2 says. And that we would be a people that are always teachable. Lord, I'm going to seek counsel, but I want to really know what you say and then apply it in my life. I'm not just going to look for the answer that I want to hear. 
and, and that I can say, okay, this is what I wanted to hear. This is okay. No, Lord, what do you say? What's your advice? What's your word, your truth to me? So here's Rehoboam. He's going to accept here what the younger guys say is they come back in verse 12. Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. And the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I'm going to add to your yoke. My father uh, chastised you with whips, but I'm going to chastise you with scourges. So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that it might be fulfilled his word, which the Lord has spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And verse 16, Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. And then King Rehoboam sent Idol Ram, who was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot, haste to flee to Jerusalem. So what we see here is the nation splits. The house of Israel, the ten northern tribes. The house of Judah with Judah and Benjamin. With Jerusalem being the capital, Solomon's temple that is there. Isn't it amazing what has happened since chapter 8? When we read that everyone went back to their own tents, the nation united, being blessed by the Lord, gladness of heart and joyful in heart, till all of a sudden, just about a little over 20 years now, there is sadness and division, and there's a split in the nation, how things can change so fast. Things change faster and spiral out of control quicker than we think when there is compromise, when there's disobedience. You see, the scripture is true. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. And whatever decisions, in the way that you're living today, there's going to be a harvest that's going to come in tomorrow. And your sin will find you out, and there will be consequences for that. And I'm not saying that harshly and all judgmentally. I'm saying that very honestly and humbly. That's what the Word of God says. And it's a loving Father that says, Follow after me so I can bless you. So there's safety in, in following after the Lord. There's blessing. There's peace and there's joy. And it's sin that's going to lead you into being bound up. We're going to see a lot of sad stories now when the house of Israel and the house of Judah is going to go from bad to worse as they're plunged deep into idol worship to eventually to go into captivity. And if you're one that you don't turn from your sin, that God is dealing with you, you're going to find yourself being all bound up and then captivity to that sin and if you want to really live freely and, and with blessing and follow after the Lord because he loves you and he wants what's best for you and he, he wants you to experience his love to a great degree true freedom is found with a heart that is just submitted to him and a life that says that I am free in Christ free to live for you and the world is just deception and sadness, and it's going to hold you in captivity, just as these guys will eventually go into captivity.
But we see that Rehoboam, he didn't take the split very serious. He sends his tax collector out there and they stone him to death. So he runs to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. And there was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shem, Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. And therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. So Rehoboam was going to go to war against the ten northern tribes. This civil war was going to take place. And the Lord came to Rehoboam, said, It's not going to happen. Go back home. This is of me. And Rehoboam, he obeys the Lord at this time. But now verse 25, as we finish the chapter, just a couple more minutes. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. Now Shechem, you say, hey, I thought that Rehoboam was made king in Shechem. When it says that he built Shechem, remember Jeroboam is a mighty man of valor. He's a great builder. He fortified the city is what he did. Jeroboam is fortifying the city. Shechem would be on the border. So he's fortifying the city, trying to fortify uh, and uh, his ten northern tribes up there as a nation. And then Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam king of Judah. And therefore the king asked advice and, and um, made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And now this thing became a sin for the people who went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made shrines in the high places and made priests from every class of people who are not of the sons of Levi. Here's what's going on. Jeroboam, he's got the 10 northern tribes. They make him king over the house of Israel. He's the first of 19 kings that are going to come on the scene. Every single king of the house of Israel is an idol worshiper. And as I said, it goes from bad to worse. And here Jeroboam plunges the house of Israel into idol worship. What he does is he says, listen, the people want to go down for you know, the feast to Jerusalem to sacrifice and to worship there at the beautiful temple of Solomon. I can't have them going to Jerusalem because then they'll want to unite with their brethren once again. They'll come back and they'll kill me. So I'm going to tell them for convenience sake that you stay up here. It's too far to go to Jerusalem. You stay up here. We'll make two temples, one in Dan, which is in the very north part of the country at the foot of Mount Hermon. Now, if you've seen slides that we've shown of Israel, they've actually done excavation there of this temple that was dedicated to, dedicated to the golden calf. It's very beautiful up there. And how the tribe of Dan ended up there, as you recall from Judges chapter 18, you, you know that when the land was divided up, the tribe of Dan got that allotment between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. But right after the days of Joshua, during the days of the judges and into the reign of, of David, you know the Philistines 
were in that area along the coast. And what happened was they would come in and the tribe of Dan was always doing battle against the Philistines. It was hard, it was difficult for them. And their faith was weak. So what they did in Judges chapter 18 is they went way up north and they moved their tribe up north to the foot of Mount Hermon. It's very beautiful there. There's oak trees there. There's um, large pine trees that are there. There's uh, walnut trees that are there. There's the headwaters of the Jordan River with trout. And they made uh, this, this place of worship, idol worship, there in Dan, in the northern part of the country at that time, because Judges chapter 18 tells us that they took this, this priest, Micah, who was a false priest, with them when they went up to establish Dan. So Dan was a place of idol worship, so he builds this temple dedicated to the golden calf at Dan. And as I mentioned to you, you can go there and see where they excavated all of that. We've taken pictures of it. It's right on the Lebanese border, about 100 yards from it. And uh, you can look over into Lebanon, but it's very beautiful. The other place was Bethel. You remember Bethel? Genesis chapter 12, as Abraham came into the promised land to Shechem, he ended up at Bethel, and he made an altar there, and he worshiped the Lord. It would be his grandson, Jacob. You remember he's running from Esau, his brother? And it's in Genesis, the book of Genesis, that we see that um, in Bethel that it was Jacob that um, went running from, again, running from his brother. And in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob is on his way to Pandanaran. He stops at this place. He pulls up a rock as a pillow. Pretty brutal using a rock as a pillow. But he has a dream. And he sees angels of God ascending and descending. And the Lord gave that covenant to Jacob, that Jacob, that you and all your descendants, this land belongs to you, as far as you can see. And he would reiterate the covenant that went from Abraham to Isaac through Jacob. And Jacob, he woke up from that dream and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I will call it Bethel, the house of God. Here was a place of worship for Abraham, a place of worship where God reiterated that covenant and the blessing that he had for his people to Jacob at Bethel, the house of God, a place of worship, and now it's a place of idol worship. How things have changed so quickly. My prayer for our hearts, that our hearts would always be a Bethel, a place of true worship, like Abraham and like Jacob that this place would always be the house of God, where God is honored, that we wouldn't compromise, compromise truth, but Lord, we're going to honor you and worship you truly in spirit and in truth, that this is our Bethel, that this is a place, Lord, that we know that you desire to work and that you want to bless and that you want to, to do great things as long as we keep our hearts on you and allow you to do that trusting in you, waiting on you, continuing to grow in your love and your grace. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And Lord, just what a blessing to go through these chapters and, and to make application. And Lord, also to just um, take heed to the warnings that are here, not to become sloppy or sleepy in our walk with you. But Lord to continue day by day, morning by morning, waking up every day just desiring to know you, to read your word, to trust in you, and to walk with you. 
I do want to pray if there's anybody here tonight that perhaps you don't know the Lord. And maybe you've never surrendered your heart truly to Jesus Christ. And I want to just take a minute here to, to give the gospel in case anybody's never received the gospel. We do that at every service here at Calvary Chapel, and, and we want to do that tonight. That if you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, the Bible says today is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. That Jesus came and he died for us because all of us are sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We can't save ourselves. You can't be religious enough or try to be good enough. It doesn't work that way. God's truth and word declares that we fall short, that we're dead spiritually, that we've broken the law. The law won't save us. But Jesus Christ came and he died for you. He fulfilled the law. He lived a perfect life. He was the son of God the perfect Lamb of God who was sacrificed for you on Calvary's cross and died in place of you and for you because of his love for you. So it isn't about being religious or trying to be good. It's about having a relationship with Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And you see, the reason he said that is because he knew that the only hope that we would ever have is to accept his love and the work that he did on Calvary's cross and believing that he was raised from the grave, which he was, three days later after his death. The tomb is empty. If this means anything, or this message of the gospel to anyone here tonight, will you open your heart? And will you pray right where you're sitting, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my personal Lord and Savior. I know that I need you that I can't save myself because I have sinned and I've sinned against you. But I ask that you would forgive me, wash me clean. You died on the cross for me, I believe that, for all of my sins and you rose again from the dead. And right now you're alive in my heart and I believe with you with all of my heart. Be my personal Lord and Savior. 